everybody, and welcome back to the weird. What is wrong with you? Why are you talking like that? I thought it would be more fun if I kind of engaged people like a game show talk host. You sound, game show host. No, you sound like one of those, like a radio DJ, morning DJ guy. If you're the fifth caller, you're getting two free tickets to Rush. What's that? They do like weird sound effects. I thought you were doing the call of the dolphin. Uh, actually, that was a Rush song I was doing called Call of the Dolphin. Rush. I could never get into Rush. I respect them as musicians. Yes. But I just couldn't get into the music. Tom Sawyer is a is a good is a very good song, but as a whole like I really like them, but I don't listen to their music. No, I don't either. It's not just not my sound. And Geddy Lee seems like a really nice guy. Oh speaking of which, speaking of which, speaking of which. Okay. Did you hear the, the the new ABBA song? There's a new ABBA song out. You posted something on your private social meet one of your 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 Facebook account, I think, about it. I did listen to it. And you didn't like it. I did. Because you're poopy pants. No, it was it was uh, it was really good. It's them. Yeah, it's a bit Broadway sounding, a mm-hmm. little bit more than their old music. But you know what I love about it? This is what I love about it. Music has become more than ever in history the realm of the very young. It is. It is the realm of the young, and all musicians over forty will say it. There's just no room for them. So, in the middle of the Billboard chart, amongst the Ed Sheeran and all these different people, and Kanye and all that, those folks is now ABBA, and they're in their 70s, and I love it. I was going to ask you how old they are. Yeah, they're in their 70s, eh? Yeah, they're number six and number seven on the charts, and I just like that because I've heard people like Annie Lennox and others say, gee, I wish there was room in music for people that weren't young, that, like, why is music on the radio just such a, you know, and, and, and it's not because young people are people buying music. I buy, everybody buys music. It's just everything, everything in the world is, a, there's a, a youth culture, there's a, a, a thing about being young that's, thrust on us from when we were young all through life and i hate it especially now that i'm older you know what's interesting is i think you're you're right i'm not disputing it but i think it's changing a little bit too now the way we listen to music now that we're streaming music as opposed to having to you know listen to what the radio stations force us to Mm -hmm. my daughter who's 10 loves classic like more classic music from the 60s 70s 80s yeah her favorite era of music is 1980s she her favorite band is is Queen, you know. So that's streaming that's allowed her. She wouldn't have ever discovered those groups unless we had CDs or or, or records of of them. But Queen is also very celebrated in the media. I mean, there was just a big movie, and the guy won Best Actor for it, right? She doesn't know that at all. She knows that through me and the music that I. I'm have. just saying it was a, you know like it was me growing up in the 80s and 70s. Like the the Beatles were over, but they were still very much no. In the public but what I mean eye. is, I guess she's not as into. She, so was she she made an interesting comment uh, about we were listening to the radio in the car the other day and she made a comment because for whatever reason it was a short trip she made a comment that the music coming out today all sounds the same it does and it's not very good no I agree speaking of um, nothing to do with that <laughs> I couldn't make a I could not find a logical segue I'm going to tell you an interesting story this week well you could have said oh that was an interesting story Dan here's another one Well, I didn't, so shut up. I'm going to tell you an interesting story this week, something that is inspired by my recent vacation. As you know, I took a very quick vacation because I'm limited in the time I can go away during the year just because of other responsibilities I have and work, and I'm not going to get into that because I kind of keep my private life private here. But I'm going to tell you a story of the various mysteries and legends of Lake Michigan. Oh, 
one of the Great Lakes. Yeah. Doesn't it sound exciting? When I first read the, the I, I actually called the document I've written all my notes on the Mysteries of Lake Michigan. And it doesn't sound interesting at all when I say it that way, but it actually is. Well, and people need to understand if you're not from this area of the world, you might not realize how huge these lakes are. They're essentially... Well, I'm going to tell you. Okay, good. Good. Um, you don't have to do that. I'm, I'm doing this podcast. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm just By kidding. the way, I'm sorry. Can I? Can you hear the thumping and pounding happening in my house right now? I love your kids. I don't they know just... what the hell they're doing this show, but it sounds like they're playing tennis in my house. At least they're active. You know what they were doing earlier? I kid you not, they were playing jacks. Like from old-timey jacks? Yeah, with a ball. Just... I don't even know where they got that from. I have no idea where it came from. I, I came downstairs, oh. and they, they had it set up on the in the living room floor. And what are you doing? Maybe you have a Victorian ghost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They just appeared. Maybe, yeah, we have some creepy dolls. Maybe they brought the jacks to them. Okay, Dan, I'm going to tell you the story about, like, stories of Lake Michigan. Dan, this is the first time I've ever taken a geographic location and i'm going to tell you all the different stories associated with that location okay. so tonight it's not one particular weird tale it's a whole bunch look at you yeah i just got inspired and i thought i'm gonna go for it i'm gonna take this ball and run with it it's a bouquet of weirdness it is so hey dan you want to hear something weird uh like right now yeah, let's talk about Lake Michigan. Okay. Lake Michigan is 22,000 square miles, and it has miles and miles of gorgeous sandy beaches. It is actually, of all the Great Lakes, the one with the most beaches. It's the fourth largest freshwater lake in the entire world. Yeah. And it has more lighthouses than any other U.S. state, which surprised me. I thought Maine or somewhere around there would, you know, with the turbulent Atlantic Ocean... Or Florida for lighthouses, but no, it is um, the state of Michigan. Well, is there perhaps more coastline? A lot of coastline. So is it the state of Michigan? Because, okay. State of Michigan. Lake Michigan is on two different states. You don't have to look it up. I'm going to tell you. I want to look at it. You can't You can't force me not to. Every time I do a podcast, you get to type in. You, you typed last week. Last week. I saw you typing. Okay. I just, yep. Yeah. Okay. You know what it looks like, eh? I know what it looks like. Michigan has more coastline than any other state except the state of Alaska. However, huh. Lake Michigan is also known and regarded as the most dangerous of the Great Lakes. Really? One half of the annual drowning fatalities in the Great Lakes occur in Lake Michigan. Wow. That averages about 38 deaths per year because of drowning. Now, the main reason for this, and I've watched a lot of video coverage now of Lake Michigan, is the abundance of waves. It's a very turbulent lake because of its size. And it actually kind of mimics the ocean. Mm -hmm. And because of the waves and how high they are, you will end up with very aggressive rip tides and rip currents. And that's how people drown. They get out there and a rip current pulls them and they don't know how to escape from a rip current, which if you're a lifeguard, you would have taken because I was a lifeguard and I remember studying that. So? You swim in the direction of the riptide, not against it. To get out of it. Yeah, you swim with it. So to, to sort of to speed up the process of getting out of it as opposed to working against it and you get tired and drown. Yeah, exactly. So you swim with it and then you try to veer off from it. Okay. So anybody out there, if you're caught in a riptide and you, you don't know what to do now, you do. I have a question for you then. Mm-hmm. 
Is it not? Is it not true that you can kind of see if a beach has a riptide? Like it, it, the water will look different where the riptide is. They say is? that, and I've been to beaches where there are riptides, but the water's so turbulent. I don't know right. that you can. Right. Okay. People do say that, though. You're very correct. Okay. Now there is a startling, overwhelming number of shipwrecks at the bottom of Lake Michigan. Approximately two thousand shipwrecks in that one location because it is so turbulent and dangerous. Wow. Okay. So the first chapter in our little book of tales of Lake Michigan tonight is going to deal with the Lake Michigan Triangle. This is located at the lower southernmost section of the lake. And the three points of that triangle are formed by Manitowoc, which is in Wisconsin, and Benton Harbor and Ludington, both of which are in the state of Michigan. It's smaller, obviously, than the famous Bermuda Triangle. It's about one-sixteenth the size of the Bermuda Triangle. Okay. Now, many witnesses who have crossed into that area have stated that they felt a sense of unease when they were in the area. They felt that they shouldn't be there. People have also reported seeing an eerie light that passes back and forth underneath the surface of the water. Mm -hmm. And other witnesses have claimed to have seen alien craft in the skies over the area. And there's actually video footage out there of strange craft in the skies over Lake Michigan. You can check it out. Can I ask, is there a, uh, a, a military base nearby? No. Okay. In the 17th century, the Great Lakes had become very important as a means of transporting goods. But they were also equally important for explorers who were navigating those waters in search of the legendary Northwest Passage. Everyone learned about that in high school. It was the famous passage that would connect the Atlantic to the Pacific and open a gateway, obviously, to Asia, to that part of the world. Yes. In 1679, a French vessel called Le Griffon, I love that, Le Griffon, is sailing across the Great Lakes, and its mission was to explore and ultimately establish a trade route. And everything was fine. The voyage was going magnificently. (laughs) And then the the vessel entered Lake Michigan, and that ship, Dan, vanished without a trace. Wow. And never been found? Never been found. And unlike the Mary Celeste, nothing was found. Gone. Mm. Yeah. And to this day, the wreckage has not been found. Because unlike a lot of these disappearances, over time the wreckage has been found because the Great Lakes are much easier to explore than the deep ocean. Sure. And there's a lot of people who just, that's their hobby, is finding wrecks. Anyway, Le Griffon is never been found. Where was it last sighted? In Detroit? It was not sighted. No, no, but how do they know it entered Lake? Like, when was it, when was its last sighting? It did a, a, a port. It stopped somewhere or some someplace along the way. Perhaps Detroit, which at that time I believe was, well, I, I don't believe. Well, it it's was. 1679, so it's probably just a small trading post or something. It, well, it could have been Detroit, which would have, was a French fort. Yeah, town. so yeah. maybe it was there. I didn't come across that in my research, but it disappeared. Theories are that she either encountered a storm and sunk or rival traders, because apparently rival traders were very aggressive back Mm -hmm. in the day. In any case, wreckage of that vessel has never been found. And just to let you know, it's a really, really famous mystery in the world of shipwrecks. People to this day are still searching for Le Griffon in Lake Michigan. If to find it would be incredible, it would be like finding the Titanic in that area. Is Lake Michigan deep? It is deep. Yeah, it gets quite deep. It's a big 22,000 square miles. It's going to be deep. I don't know how deep, but it's deep. I know. I, was, I remember seeing recently something about the different depths of different world lakes, like Lake Baikal in, in Russia is the, the deepest. I think Superior is the deepest of the Great Lakes. Well, I remember in my research, people went down 100 feet 
So it's got to be that deep or more. Yeah, yeah. It's not like a kilometer deep. That's not like the Mariana Trench or something. It'd be easier to research or, or explore because it's at a depth that people can go. And way easier to navigate than the ocean. And they can use a lot of radar telemetry to locate wrecks. That's how they do it. They don't dive to find them. Right. They just use radar and imaging and then they find them that which way. Which is how they found the Erebus and the Terror, which were the sh- famous ships that were also trying to find the Franklin Expedition, trying to find a uh, north, the Northwest Passage in the 1800s. They used radar and, and they sonar did. imaging. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on. In 1891, there was a famous schooner named the Thomas Hume and it was sailing from Chicago on Lake Michigan. And the vessel was used, that particular vessel was used to transport lumber and its hull had been reinforced for that very purpose. Now, on that particular journey, she was going to pick up a load of lumber. The Thomas Hume was not sailing alone. She was traveling with her sister ship, the Rouse Simons. And I'm gonna say Rouse Simon. Um, Everyone I've heard talk about this are American. They've said Rouse Simons, but I think it's Rouse Simon. I'm gonna just go with that. Okay. When a storm began to gather. Now the Rue Simon decided to return to Chicago, decided it would be more prudent to turn around, but the Thomas Hume chose to stay the course and weather the storm. The Thomas Hume then disappeared without a trace. Her crew of seven was never heard from again, and her owners were so frustrated, they established a substantial reward for information that might help them locate the vessel. But you know what? Nobody came forward with anything. But that's not all of the story. It was not until 2006 that she was finally found at the bottom of the lake in almost perfect condition. Oh, wow. Uh, where? Like, where in the lake? Where was You keep it, yeah. asking me questions that make me look stupid because it never said. I don't know. Oh, my God. What, do you want me to give you the longitude and latitude? Was it near? No, no. Was it near Chicago? Milwaukee? I don't know. So I didn't do my research. No, everyone thinks I'm stupid. Uh, they thought that before. Well, where were they going? Well, who was on the ship? What was she wearing? You know what? Take this as a compliment to you, and I'm being sincere here. You often do know the answers to these questions. But I'm also not doing a deep dive into that story, so I didn't nitpick. Sure, I get it. detail the story. I've got like eight pages, and this is like half of page one, you goddamn son of a bitch. All right. I love you so much. You make me laugh. Oh, man. Okay. Okay, so it was not until 2006 she was found at the bottom of the lake in almost perfect condition, and there was no indication as to what had made her sink. So the the ship seemed perfectly fine. Exactly. There was no big hole in it. The hull hadn't been torn apart. Weird. It was in good shape. Jump forward to 1912. The Rousse Simon is back in action, and now she's being used, and I love this. She's transporting Christmas trees from Thompson to Chicago. I know, right? And a number of lumberjacks who were working at the tree harvesting area um, asked to hitch a ride on the vessel to Chicago. So her crew, her normal crew, is joined by a complement of lumberjacks. So that was quite a party, I'm sure. Hmm. So that made the total complement of crew and passengers 16. The Roussimont had been seen by another vessel, and she looked like she was doing fine. She was sailing in clear conditions with a distress flag flying. Okay. They wondered what was going on. They attempted to reach her by lifeboats, but she was traveling too quickly. So she was under sail with a distress flag flying, and she wouldn't slow down. She was under sail, and they couldn't reach her in time. So that ship never arrived in Chicago. By the way, Dan, I just realized something. Where did the vessel sink? In the triangle. Right. 
This is all stuff that happened in that triangle. So now who's stupid? <laughs> you love this detail, okay? One year later, Christmas trees start to wash up on the shores of Lake Michigan in various locations. Then, shortly thereafter, a fisherman in a little town known as Two Rivers found the captain's wallet, the captain of the Rue Simon. The ship is eventually found in 165 feet of water. There you go. So 165 feet. There is no sign of why she sank and no answer to why she sank has ever been found. So these are like a whole collection of Mary Celeste's. Yeah, but remember Mary Celeste was still sailing. No, no, but we're maritime disasters that just, there's no easy explanation. And they're all in one particular location. So that's why they're calling it the Lake Michigan Triangle. Is this area known for, like when we, going way back to when we talked about the actual Bermuda Triangle, they talked about those rogue waves. Nope, not known for that at all. Oh. So 1921, another lumber schooner named the Rosabelle was on her final voyage from an area called High Island to Benton Harbor, which I mentioned earlier. She never arrived at her destination and was later found adrift after capsizing. She had sailed with 11 crew on board. They had all vanished and have never been found. I would note that it would take considerable force to capsize a vessel of that size. Interesting. Important to note, though, her hull was badly damaged, as if something had plowed into her. Mm. But her crew was never found, nor were their bodies. I don't want to jump the gun here. I'm just wondering, I'm thinking in my head, I mean, it could be just that they ran into another ship. Is there sea monster stories? Didn't no, come across. Okay. I thought that too, and I didn't yeah. come across any. The triangle is just, it's just a mis- mysterious triangle, right? Mm-hmm. On April 28th, 1937, a freighter named the O.M. McFarland was traveling through dangerous Great Lakes ice. So apparently winter. Going through the Great Lakes can be a very precarious journey. And this particular journey was extraordinarily difficult on the captain and the crew. They were absolutely exhausted. But finally, they made it through the ice fields and entered the clearer waters of Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. At that point, the captain who was exhausted, he had been up on the bridge the whole time. His name was George Donner, decided that he would take a break. He was Exhaust. What are you doing? What are you looking at? The map. He was exhausted. So he retired to his cabin, locked the door from the inside, and he instructed the second mate to wake him when they were near their port. So they finally arrive at their destination, and the second mate, as instructed, went to the cabin to wake the captain. Well, the captain didn't answer. They finally, in concern, broke into the cabin and discovered that Captain Donner had vanished. Oh, that's odd. No trace of him has ever been found, and the window in his cabin was too small to crawl through. Well, did they murder him? The the cabin was locked from the inside. He was actually very well-loved. His crew really liked him. They were horrified. Well, you're horrified usually working with me. Well, everyone is. It's a known thing. There's blogs about that. Mm -hmm. So he was never found. This is a big one, too. This is a famous, famous mystery. He just disappeared. Mm -hmm. Wow, that is weird. In June 1950, Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 2501. Oh, no. Yep, is heading from New York to Seattle with 58 passengers and crew on board. When they entered the famous Lake Michigan Triangle Zone, the pilots of the craft asked the control tower to descend to 2,500 feet 
because they were in the middle of what appeared to be electrical discharges in the air around them, and they were also reporting extremely high winds. After that, the plane vanished from radar, and no further communications from her crew came through. She disappeared. Despite a thorough search, no significant wreckage was ever located. However, what? human remains and a little bit of flotsam and jetsam did wash up on the shore. But the... Uh, okay. Wow. Never been found to this you would day. Think that would be something they would find. Yeah. And no oil slick, right? There's always an oil slick. There was nothing. Not, not on coal-burning planes. Can you imagine a coal-burning plane? <laughs> oh, my God. Shovel, shovel. <laughs> On that particular night, two police officers had reported seeing a mysterious red light over the lake two hours after the plane had disappeared. And they stated, both of them, that it remained in place, immobile, for approximately 10 minutes before it abruptly disappeared. This is the night of the plane crash. Two hours afterwards. Some believe that what they witnessed is what is known as a red sprite. I'd never heard of this before. And that's lightning that is generated by a positive discharge rather than a negative one. In normal lightning, the discharge is negative, and that's what causes the white electric shock that we okay. see. So red sprites are caused by positive discharge. Now, here's a really interesting note. I know that you're going to love this. Clive Cussler, the famous writer, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. has funded an annual search for that aircraft in conjunction with the Michigan Shipwreck Research Associates. It happens all the time every year, and to date, they found nothing. I would be curious. So I would think that even if this thing exploded, that there would still be fairly large chunks of it intact. Well, of course, and the seats are all, all float. Like, do you always find stuff like luggage and seats and things? If we have any listeners that are, and we, I, I actually know we do have one that is an actual uh, pilot and, and expert in this field, I'd love to hear... Uh, your thoughts on this. And I had never heard of a red Sprite. Actually, not kidding. Sprite did have a red Sprite. It was like raspberry flavored. Gross. So Clive Cussler spends some money trying to find it, and they're still looking. Okay, the Lake Michigan Triangle, I'm going to wrap this part of the story up, has been responsible for more disappearances than the Bermuda Triangle. Wow. Yeah. And many people believe that it's actually a portal to another dimension. Right. But they always believe that. And same thing with the Bermuda Triangle. You know, one of the reasons that's been cited for why there's been so many wreckages and disappearances is because it's a very high traffic area. And this is a very high traffic area. You've got Chicago, Milwaukee, Green Bay. I mean, Chicago is one of the biggest cities in the world. It is. So that would make sense and has been an important place for a long time. So it makes sense that there would be shipwrecks there and and if, if we go back to however long ago that we did that episode i think it, it stated that the bermuda triangle doesn't actually even have more shipwrecks than other places in the world but the fact that this place in a relative i mean it's i know it's a great lake but still to have that many i know and not just boats but a plane and disappearing completely and disappearing yeah in an area that would actually be easier to find than than the ocean, like in, in and the crews missing, right? Like a lot of those ships, they found them and have found no indication of what happened to the crew. Interesting. So they find the wreckage eventually, but they don't find the crew. Oh, spooky times! Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Spooky times, Dan. Spooky times. Mm-hmm. 
Dan, we're now going to leave the triangle altogether and go in a completely different direction. Um, a square. I'm going to now talk to you about the disappearance of Stephen Kubacki. Okay. Stephen Kubacki was a 23-year-old history student at Hope College, which is located on the southeastern shore of Lake Michigan. Oh, that's weird because that's the... You're talking about Lake Michigan for this episode. That's fitting. Isn't Good. that wild? I was sure you were going to say Lake Huron. Coincidence? Or is it? He loved the outdoors and all activities associated with it. He was a real outdoors guy. Camping, skiing, all of it. In February 1978, while on a routine solo cross-country ski excursion, he vanished without a trace. Now, he was traveling very close to the Lake Michigan Triangle. But he had made this trek before, and the route that he went wasn't particularly challenging in terms of cross-country skiing. It was pretty average, like I could probably do it. So snowmobilers had spotted a backpack with cross-country skis stuck in the ground next to it, and these appeared to be abandoned in the vicinity of a community called Saugatuck, Michigan. Now, why were the skis and backpack dropped? Mm-hmm. All that was found was a 200-yard trail of footprints that led to the very edge of Lake Michigan and then abruptly ended. And after investigation, they determined that the skis in the backpack did indeed belong to Stephen Kubaki. A massive search was initiated by the police, but Stephen could not be located. They believed that he must have walked out onto the ice, fallen through, and drowned. But why? But why? One year later... On, you got to start moving around because that chair is so loud. That creaky chair. It's a haunted chair. Exactly. It's a, a haunted, creaky old lady chair. I hate this chair. I remember when your pa went up in the woods and he saw the devil. And that devil got in him. And that's how we made you. Yeah, exactly. All right. So they've... <laughs> that's how we made you. <laughs> so you took you a minute, didn't it? So they believe that he went out onto the ice... And which was quite thin and drowned. One year later, on May the 5th, 1979, Stephen Kubaki suddenly wakes up in a grassy area in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. What? He has somehow traveled 700 miles. He has absolutely no memory or recollection of the 14 and a half months that he has been missing. He is wearing clothing that he has never seen before. He is also equipped with a backpack that contains maps and items that lead him to believe that he has traveled to Sacramento, San Francisco, Rena, Chicago, and Utah. And it appeared that he had been hitchhiking. He also found on his person $40 in cash, a pair of brand new prescription glasses, and a t-shirt from a marathon that had been held in Wisconsin. What? The last thing he could remember was feeling cold and scared that he would be lost in the winter darkness of Lake Michigan forever. Oh, my God. What? I know, right? He had no idea that any time had passed until he saw the date on a newspaper. Okay, I I need to, I am sorry, I need to say this. This might be the weirdest story you've ever told. (laughs) Well, it's unexpected. You didn't expect that, did you? No, it was weird in the beginning when his footprints just, you know, why would he do that? Why would he go on the ice? I don't have an explanation for this. Nobody does. Okay. He's confused. He's frightened. He's terrified, actually. So he makes his way to his aunt's house 
which was conveniently located about 20 miles from where he has just woken up. Okay. And through meeting, seeing his aunt again, he is then reunited with his family. Now, he states that the event, he's very calm about it, was likely a loss of memory that was the result of severe physical and psychological exhaustion. And he has never sought psychiatric help for what happened and has denied all offers for hypnotic regression therapy. And he states that he's more intrigued than frightened by the whole idea of the missing year. Now, there's a witness, a guy named Ronald Curtis, who remembers picking up a hitchhiker and giving him a ride from Pittsfield to a community named Great Barrington, which is where his aunt lived. Mm -hmm. That hitchhiker fitted Kubaki's description to a T. And the hitchhiker told Ronald Curtis that his name was in fact Nathan and that he had been observing an Eastern religious cult that was located in the San Francisco area before flying to Boston and then ultimately traveling by bus to Pittsfield. He said that he was taking a message to the aunt of a friend who had been missing for more than a year. And that aunt's name was June Bozak and she was in fact Stephen Kubaki's aunt. So when Kubaki got wind of this, and the guy, got, Ronald Curtis described him, and he described Kubaki to a T. Okay. Okay, it was Kubaki. So then Kubaki adjusted his story to actually include hitchhiking, but he denies the other details that Curtis reported. Kubaki did not want to talk about this, did not write a book about this, now works as a psychologist, and has actually published a book. And you're going to love this. Um, okay, this is the title of the book. Meta Mathematical Foundations of Existence, Godel, Quantum God, and Beyond. What on? I tell you, if I saw that in the bookstore, I'd just pass on by. Wow. That's a long title. So, again, wow. since the event, he has refused to discuss the incident. So, he was in the papers when it happened, but he's not talked about it at all since and refuses to do so. Well, okay. So, here's just spitballing on this. I guess it's possible he wanted to disappear made it look like he had drowned or something and then buggered off to live a life maybe his parents didn't want him to do or, you know, that kind of thing. Why? Why? Why go to all that trouble? It's an elaborate thing to do. And he claims to not remember anything in that year. 14.5 months were missing. Wakes up. He's in a field in Massachusetts. Yeah. Where, how the hell did I get here? Yeah. Last thing he remembers is being on the shores of Lake Michigan. Exactly. Now, it's not unusual it's rare, but not unheard of. Let me yeah. say that for people to lose huge chunks of memory when they're going through trauma, but he wasn't really going through trauma. He was at school and, you know, it was a normal kind of program. It wasn't overly, you know, taxing. He wasn't like in, in, in the right. law program in, in fourth year or something, losing his mind. It's really strange. I guess if he became hypothermic, that could be traumatic. I guess. Like that, that incident could have been traumatic. And no one has come forward ever saying, he was with me here. He was with me there. He was with us here. Nobody. So there's no way to put together any kind of puzzle about where he was. Yeah. Very strange. Wow. Spooky times. How the hang do we not know of that story? Spooky times, Dan. Spooky times. So other hikers and campers have also vanished in that area without a trace. One of the most famous cases was someone named Amber Rose Smith, who vanished not that long ago in 2013. She was outside playing with her two family dogs. Oh, and she's like a kid. She's like two, oh, okay. two-year-old, 
girl. She's outside playing with the two family dogs, and her father just went inside. He was with her to use the bathroom. After using the bathroom, he said he was gone about a minute. He returned outside. Amber and the dogs were gone. The dogs returned shortly thereafter, and Amber did not. And a thorough search was conducted. The next day, she was found miles from her home in a location that had been searched thoroughly during the initial search the day before. She was standing in the middle of the road, just staring into space. Nobody knows how she could possibly have traveled so far from home. She's only two years old. There's no way it was possible. Like, we're talking seven miles. And also, no one knows how she survived the freezing overnight temperatures at that time of year. And she was just standing in the middle of the road, looking up at the sky. No sign of physical of physical assault? Nothing. Like if she'd been picked up by... No. Kidnapper who got sort of... Nothing. Cold feet? Okay. Nothing. And it's never been explained. Is this sort of... Is this within sort of range of the, the triangle again? Yes. It's in the vicinity. So that's a very famous Lake Michigan case. Wow. Amber Rose Smith. And she doesn't remember anything because she's older now. But there's no way she could have survived that night with what she was wearing. Weird. Are you ready to move on? Yes. Okay, Dan. Now we're going to leave that part behind. And I'm going to talk to you now about America's Stonehenge. Oh. In 2007, a strange arrangement of rocks was discovered under Lake Michigan by Mark Hawley. And this guy is a professor of underwater archaeology at Northwestern Michigan College. And these folks were just conducting a very routine sonar sweep. Um, The area that they were working in is known as Grand Traverse Bay. The rocks they located were found very shallow, actually, given the depth of the water, only 40 feet below the surface. And the rocks in question form a line for approximately one mile that leads to a perfect hexagon configuration on the bottom of the lake. The stones are almost all the same size. I should note that the Anishinaabe tribe, who are the local indigenous uh, community, believe that the stones were placed there by their ancestors. Cool. 10,000 years ago, the area in which those rocks were found was not, in fact, submerged. I was going to ask that. Okay. And it was home at that time to both mastodons and post-Ice Age humans. Mm Mm-hmm. Digital imaging of the rocks have revealed what could in fact be carvings. And one of those carvings looks like it's the image of a mastodon. And the depths of the lines that are etched into the rock suggest that they were created by humans, our ancestors. Some believe that the stones might have been in fact something known as a drive lane. And those were used to force animals to move in a specific direction so that they could be hunted more easily. I should note at this point, too, that Michigan is already home to petroglyph sites and standing stones. So it's not unusual for the area. In fact, there's an island called Beaver Island. Uh, I know you visited that on several occasions. Riley! (laughs) Just because I'm a Canadian doesn't mean I love beavers. On Beaver Island, in, in, in the middle of Lake Michigan, a group of stones was discovered. And that arrangement consisted of a group of large boulders centered around a rock that had strange carvings on it. It wasn't, they could be carvings, they were carvings. Yeah. Many of the outlying rocks had holes, lines, or other features such as images of feathers carved into them. The most popular theory about all of this is that indigenous peoples indeed used the area on Beaver Island for ceremonial purposes. Mm -hmm. It also suggests that early humans were far more advanced than we originally thought. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the exact locations of the stones I am talking about, not the Beaver Island ones, the submerged ones, has been kept a secret because they're still researching it and they don't want too much diving traffic because it's only 40 feet down. Right. And many have commonly referred to the site as America's Stonehenge. I like that. I like that. Yeah, that's cool. I like spooky rocks. Cool. And you can see the um, the sonar imaging of the spooky rocks. All right, Dan. Now we're going to talk about lighthouses. Oh, God. Here we go again. Many of Lake Michigan's lighthouses are believed to be haunted. And one area of interest is an area called South Haven, where the lightkeeper's residence was not attached to the light tower itself. And this is super unusual. Most of the times, the residence is attached to the tower for maintenance purposes. It doesn't make any sense to not yeah, do like that. Yeah, through a tunnel or it's built right up through the, the roof. Because you want to get up there if you have to in an emergency or in bad weather, which is when the, the light is most useful. So the ghost of Captain James S. Donahue, who watched over that lighthouse from 1874 to 1909, has been seen by a whole bunch of people at that location in South Haven. Now, he had lost a leg during the American Civil War. Now, this is where it gets creepy. His specter is most often reported as being crawling on his hands and knees on the pier of the lighthouse catwalk with a lantern clenched between his teeth, and he appears desperate to reach the lighthouse. So there's this ghost on his hands and knees just crawling along with a lantern in his mouth. That's creepy. Why crawling is so creepy. Well, it just, and he's desperate crawling. He's crawling like really aggressively. That's kind of sad, actually. His walk is often heard on the floors of the lighthouse because his footsteps were very distinct because he had a wooden leg. Mm -hmm. So you would hear like, think clunk, think clunk, think clunk. So you knew that it was somebody with a wooden leg. Let's move on to the White River Lighthouse in Whitehall. And it's haunted by the ghost of a man named Captain Bill Robinson. And Robinson actually built that lighthouse and operated it from 1876 to 1919. Was he Swiss by any chance? No. And the sad part is he died the day before he was to retire from the lighthouse. The day before his retirement, he died. He can be heard walking through the structure at night, forever repeating a list of his duties. And the ghost of his wife, Sarah, has also been reported to haunt the keeper's house, going about various domestic chores. And making sure that everything is ship shape. Was he young when he died? Or was he like retiring at the age of 70? Well, he's pro- well, not back then. He was probably retiring, what, the age of 50s? I assume 50s? Okay. Maybe 60s? If there was a pudding that he enjoyed, what do you think it would be? Tapioca? French vanilla? You're Pistachio. beyond weird. Okay, I'm getting close to the end of my, my story here. Many of the ships at the bottom of Lake Michigan are much like the Titanic itself graveyards. So we mentioned this earlier. Why did so many ships go down? Well, conditions on Lake Michigan can turn very nasty very quickly. It's known for it. And a lot of early boats were wooden hauled and were way overloaded with cargo. They would routinely load them beyond what they were ever designed to carry. Right. I want to point out the wreck of a vessel that you can go and visit today if you want called the Francisco Morazan. It is actually only partially submerged. So you can just sail up to it and look at it. And it's located on the south side of Manitou Island. Oh. It was manufactured. It has this amazing history, and that's why I have to tell you about it. It was manufactured in 1922 in Hamburg, Germany, under the name the Arcadia. And it was turned over to the Nazis in 1935, at which point it was named the Elbing. Between 1935 and 45, 
the ship, she was used in the war effort in World War II. Mm-hmm. In 1945, she was captured by the Allies in the River Elbe in Germany. And she was turned over as salvage to, UK, to the United Kingdom's Ministry of War Transport. At that point, she was renamed the Empire Congress. In 1946, she was given to Norway and again renamed. And this time she was called the Brunus. In the years to follow, she was sold to many different parties and operated as the Schooled, the Ringas, the Los Mayas, and finally, the Francisco Morazan. Her final voyage was supposed to be from Miami to Canada, then on to Chicago, and finally across the Atlantic to Europe. On November 29th, on Lake Michigan, she struck the submerged wreck of the Walter L. Frost, which damaged its hull quite badly and it was determined that she could not be salvaged. Now, attempts were made to salvage her cargo. However, a series of severe storms tore the ship apart, and the cargo had to be abandoned. And this is what she was carrying. Aluminum, baled hair to be used in upholstery, bottle caps, canned chicken, castings, chemicals, hides, lard, machinery, scrap metal phosphates, tin plate, and toys. They're describing your locker in high school. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing like a good can of chicken with some lard sprinkled on top when you are playing with your toys. Now, I'm going to end this podcast. My with a song? Dissertation. No, with something really positive. Oh. So the cargo that I just described to you eventually began to wash up on shore and was super welcomed by the locals. Of particular interest was the Blue Star brand cans of chicken which the natives really liked. The, the people living in that area thought were great. And the balsa wood model aircraft kits became very popular with the children. Oh. And those were all part of the cargo of that vessel. So these children reaped the benefits of destruction. They did. Nobody died, so it wasn't that bad a, a Well, I like to think that ships have their own spirit, and it died. I find that disgusting. They should have given them back to the sea. I would eat the chicken. They were poor, probably. What was that? I don't know. It's the end of days. Did you hear it? There was a... Yeah, I heard it too. I've heard a couple of weird noises during this uh, recording, Riley. Well, maybe it's the ghosts of Lake... So, Dan, that are that is, that is my tapestry of tales. I knew nothing of these. This cornucopia of... Tales. This, this was wonderful. I mean, I'm sorry, but that one, uh, the, the triangle's really cool. The one about, what's his name again? Steve. Stephen Kabaki. Yeah. I love that name too. That's a great name. Yeah. Uh, that tale to me, it, it, like, I think that's one of the coolest tales you've ever brought up. I, I love it. I love that. I love when there's no logical, e- sorry, no easy explanation to the mystery. I love it. I love the fact, though, that he lost 14 and a half months of his life, and he's really okay with it. They offered him regressive hypnotherapy, and he's like, nah, it's okay, I'm good. Well, I mean, that could be because he's hiding something, or he knows the the truth, but even if that were the case, still super weird. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you go to all those lengths just to say to your parents, sorry, I blacked out for 14 months, uh... That, that's a really weird lie. By the way, the uni- the uh, school where he was, it was Hope College. They gave him a degree. They let him. They gave him a degree. They didn't make him go and finish up the classes that he had missed. They just said, "Here's your degree." And now he's written that weird book. That weird book with that title. 
Actually, I, I'm curious. I want to go check that. Yeah, out. you can see it on Amazon. See, I'd, I'd like to actually check that out because then he's talking about God and and metaphysics and stuff. Yeah, I didn't. Is that connected to his? If there's like a, a wormhole, there are no reviews of his book on Amazon. Nobody has reviewed it. Yeah. Um, but I was only going to talk about the Lake Michigan Triangle when I started this. And then I came across so many other stories that I shortened the Lake Michigan Triangle and added other things because I thought this would be fun to do. I've never done this before where I've taken a setting and just delved into all the different things that are associated with it. And that's why I'm happy about my Lake Michigan stories. I feel like something just collapsed in my house. Did you hear that? No. It was like dishes breaking. <laughs> God. All right. Well, that was awesome. I really enjoyed that collection. I'm glad of you did. I enjoyed doing it. And they were all like nice and short. Well, who cares how long they are? They're just good. And for once, it's not set in Ireland. You know, the good people of Ireland, Riley, support this show. A small country of only, I think, approximately 7 million people. And we have a good chunk of listeners coming out of the, of the Fair Isle. Mm. So you leave them and my people alone. Okay. 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 I'm glad I did that because I was just in the Great Lakes. I actually saw Lake Huron up close and personal. Yes. yes I traversed it. And are they, con- like, like I, this is going to sound like a stupid question, because I know you were close to where those two lakes link. Is it, like, waterfall? Like, how? No, you can sail. to go from one? Yeah, you can sail. You can. Yeah. So you can. There's, they're connected. They are. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. There And there also might be some man-made connections. This I'm not sure of. I'm not, I didn't come across that in my research, but that could very well exist. I don't know, but they're big. Like the, the link between Lake Ontario and Lake Erie is much, like, that's like a treacherous linkage. But those two lakes are so close together that anyway, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. But anyway, that's my story, and uh, that's all I have this week. It's it's enough. I enjoyed researching it. Yeah, the Stephen Kubaki thing's hilarious. You got to see a picture of him. He's a total nerd, big glasses, <laughs> and Stephen you know, Kubaki? yes, Stephen Kubaki showing up at his aunt's house. Where was I? What happened? Yeah, so it's all good. And he wrote a weird book. All right, well, folks, thanks for listening to the weird. We appreciate your support. The global support we that we have for this show, we do, is really neat, and we love. If you're a fan of the weird, you know, you can rate us. Rate us. You can uh, write a review. Write a review. You can spread the word of the weird to your friends and family, co-workers, and the guy who cleans your windshield at the intersection. He'll love it. That's how we get this show continuing to grow. We sure do. On behalf of uh, myself and my stomping family, good night. <laughs> And uh, I'm Riley Stewart. Thanks for joining us again. Like, folks, we just love that you're here for the journey. Like, I, I've said it a million times. And I'll say it every time. I love that you guys listen to us. And I love that you respond to what we're doing. And you like it as much as we do. And that's why we're just going to keep on trucking. Good night, everybody. Good night. What was that? I don't know. Did you hear it? Was a- yeah, I heard it too. Good night, everybody. <laughs>